Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 21A, De Bello Gallico, Book 6, Chapter 13. In this episode, you will learn that everyone wants to be a Druid, and that even in ancient Gaul, college kids go study abroad for a semester. In omni Gallia eorum hominum qui aliquo sunt numero atque honore genera sunt duo, nam plebes paine servorum habetur loco, quae nihil audet per se, nullo adhibetur concilio, plerique cum aut aire alieno, aut magnitudine tributorum aut injuria potentiorum premuntur, sese in servitutum dicant nobilibus, quibus in hos eadem omnia sunt iura quae dominis in servos. Sed dehis duobus generibus alterum est druidum, alterum equitum. Illi rebus divinis intersunt, sacrificia publica ac privata procurant, religiones interpretantur. Ad hos magnus adolescentium numerus disciplinae causa concurrit, magnoque hi sunt apodeos honore. Nam fere de omnibus controversiis publicis privatisque constituunt, et, si quod est admissum facinus, si caides facta, Si de hereditate de finibus controversia est, idem de cernunt, primia poinasque constituunt, si qui aut privatus aut populus eorum decreto non stetit, sacrificiis interdicunt. Haec poina apudeus est gravissima, quibus ita est interdictum, hi numero impiorum acceleratorum habentur, hi somnes decedunt. Aditum sermonemque defugiunt, nequid ex contagione incomodi accipiant. Neque his petentibus ius reditur, neque onus olos communicatur. His autem omnibus druidibus praest unus, qui sumum inter eos habet auctoritatem. Hoc mortuo, aut si qui ex reliquis excelet dignitate succedet, aut si sunt plures pares suffragio druidum, non numquam etiam armis de principatu contendunt. Hi certo ani tempora infinibus carnutum, quae regio totius Galliae media habetur, consident in loco consecrato, huc omnes undique, qui controversias habent, conveniunt, eorumque decretis judiciisque parent. Disciplina in Britannia reperta, atque inde in Galliam translata esse existimatur. Et nunc qui diligentius eam rem cognoscere volunt, plerumque illo discendi causa proficiscuntur. In all of Gaul, of those men who are with any rank or honor, there are two types. For the plebeian is held almost in the place of slaves, who dare nothing by themselves and are invited into no planning. And very many, when they are pressed either by debt or the magnitude of their taxes or by the injustice of those more powerful, they declare themselves in servitude to the nobility, for whom all the laws over these are the same as those which are for masters over slaves. But of these two types, the one is the Druids, the other the Equestrians. The former take part in divine matters, they take care of public and private sacrifices, they interpret religious rituals. 
To these people a large number of the young rush together, and they are in great honor among them, for they decide about almost all public and private disputes. And, if any crime is admitted, if a murder has happened, if there is a dispute about inheritance, about boundaries, the same people settle it. They decide rewards and punishments. If any private citizen or people does not stand by their decree, they prohibit them from sacrifices. This punishment among them is the most serious. These people, for whom it had been forbidden, are held in the number of the impious and wicked, and all withdraw from these people. They flee their approach in conversation, so that they do not receive anything detrimental from contact, and lawful status is not restored to those seeking it, nor any honor shared. And over all these druids one is in charge, who has the highest authority among them. At this person's death, either if any one of the rest is preeminent in dignity, he succeeds, or, if there are many equals, by a vote of the druids. And sometimes they even compete about the leadership with arms. These men, at a fixed time of the year in the borders of the Carnutes, the region which is held as the middle of all of Gaul, assemble on a consecrated place. To this place, from everywhere, all who have disputes come together, and they obey the decrees and judgments of these people. Their teaching is considered to have been discovered in Britannia, and from there brought across to Gaul. And now, those who want to learn the matter more diligently generally set out to that place for the sake of learning. Book 5 closes with the statement that Caesar found Gaul somewhat more peaceful, and Book 6 begins with Caesar tying up some loose ends and then turning his whole heart and mind to putting down Ambiorix and the Treveri. Labienus has a battle with the Treveri and wins, and then Caesar decides to cross the Rhine again, moving into the territory of the Germani, because the Germani had sent some cavalry to fight on the Gallic side against Labienus, and because he suspected Ambiorix might try to cross into Germania to escape. And at this point, Caesar actually stops the war narrative. He says, Since this point has been reached, it would not seem strange to tell about the customs of the Gauls and the Germani, and the ways in which these nations differ between each other. Book 6 then launches into an extended ethnography, where Caesar devotes a large chunk of time to describing Gallic society, customs, religious beliefs, and family structure in great detail, and contrasting them with those of the Germani. In this section, Caesar describes the three-class structure of Gallic society, plebeians, equestrians, and druids, which his audience would have recognized as corresponding roughly to the Roman three-class system of plebeian, equestrian, and patrician. Then he centers on the Druids and their various roles in presiding over religious rites, acting as judges, and settling disputes. He mentions that there is one head Druid who is in charge for life, and that the selection process for a new leader, like any effective political process, involves a combination of seniority, voting, and weapons. In this description, we also get some information about Gallic society as a whole, about how the plebeians are almost slaves, have no rights, are oppressed by those in power, and often enter indentured servitude to pay off debts or taxes, about how a lot of young people want to be druids, about how the interdiction from sacrifices and social ostracism is the severest punishment in Gallic society, and about how druidic teachings came from Britannia and how the most serious students go there to learn. The question arises here as to why Caesar would want to spend so much time describing the social structure and customs of the enemy. If, as I have suggested in previous episodes, Caesar has been slowly shifting the way he depicts the Gauls, laying the foundation for future acceptance into Roman Imperium, then this ethnography might actually be necessary. Caesar began Book 1 of his commentary by talking about the geographic space and people group divisions of what he called Gaul, but his sketch of the area he labels as Gallia encompassed a much larger area than the term would have originally meant. 
To a Roman, the first word of Caesar's commentary would have called to mind Gallia Narbonensis, which Caesar calls the province. The result of this is that Caesar essentially invented the concept of Gallia as a nation in the Roman mind, and pushed outward the borders of their conception of the Roman world. And he was so effective at this that it's almost impossible not to picture all the Gallic tribes as being part of a larger unified nation with shared social and governmental systems, as though they were a monolithic people group, and this is because of Caesar. And for five full books of commentary, the Gauls have been the enemy, in the beginning strange and barbarous and other and far off from Rome, but Caesar's war seems to be nearing its end, and we have seen in Caesar's more recent books his depiction of the Gauls both individually and as a people seems to have gradually shifted. By pausing now to paint a picture of Gallic culture and society in detail, Caesar could be attempting to show that the Gauls, although they do have some strange practices, are maybe more similar to the Romans than they are different, especially in comparison to their neighbors the Germani, whom he will describe as worshipping nature, having virtually no organized religion, practicing no agriculture, wearing nothing but animal skins, having a very limited and primitive government, and only caring about hunting and war. Gaul, which you and the Roman audience now conceive of as occupying a definite geographic and cultural space thanks to Caesar, might not seem quite as foreign and far off now as it might have in the beginning. And by describing another people, further off and less civilized and located in a forest filled with strange and fantastic creatures, it could be that Caesar is moving Gaul closer to Rome, both symbolically and literally. The borders of the world have been pushed further outward, just like they were at the beginning of the commentary through Caesar's invention of the nation of Gaul. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. Caesar mentions three social classes in Gaul, but only talks about two. Why does he not discuss the plebeians? What different types of debt might there be, and how disruptive a force can debt be? Would the religion and social customs of your opponents in a war be important to consider in military operations? Why or why not? Why would so many young people want to study to become druids? How can social ostracism be a powerful punishment? What can you learn about Gallic religious beliefs from the social roles and election process of the druids? What role does religion and religious ritual play in the Aeneid? What points of comparison can you make with this section? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete.